enjoy the dulcet tones of someone who loves history, humanity, and space a whole hell of a lot. I only censor myself around people I'm not comfortable with, and since I'm talking to myself, I am extremely comfortable, so I cannot guarantee no swears. I'm Hannah, born in Oregon in the very early 90s, and part of that Hannah-named hive mind, but I happily answer to HD, so brace for the obligatory joke. Coming to you in high def, HD fills her sweet spare time with space. In my high school and college years, I read Tom Robbins books. Like a lot of Tom Robbins books. (laughs) I've been reading above my pay grade for decades now, so it wasn't too much of a stretch to pick him up when I was a teen, though I probably shouldn't have. My dad got me started with Even Cowgirls Get the Blues, and then he suggested Still Life with Woodpecker, and I went off and found Jitterbug Perfume and Villa Incognito and Fierce Invalids Home from Hot Climates and Skinny Legs and All, and then I just needed to stop for a bit. I still have another roadside attraction to read, in addition to a few more novels and short stories and such, but I've needed a break. I still reread him every now and then, but so far it's just been with friends. He's fun to read aloud on road trips, when you're a few hours into the day, in the passenger seat, and the horizon doesn't look any closer, and you need to make it to Cedar Rapids before night hits, but you want to fold time a little bit, make it pass faster. He's a good example of applied relativity, if you remember how perception affects time. Spend an hour reading Robbins, and you'll be amazed how fast that hour passed. I don't recommend Robbins to everyone. He's one of the filthiest literary writers I've actually managed to stick with. Sex and sexism and the male gaze feature prominently in his books. I'll always be able to make certain friends simultaneously laugh and wince and nod when I say the word peachfish. But Robbins has also written some of the most lyric, quotable stuff I've ever read. The sentences and phrases are just so perfectly crafted. For example, and to ease us into today's cosmological topic of discussion, here's a piece from Still Life with Woodpecker. Quote, Being four times larger than the moon, the earth appeared to dominate. Caught in the earth's gravitational web, the moon moved around the earth and could never get away. Yet, as any half-awake materialist Noel knows, that which you hold, holds you. That's right, we're going to learn about tides! They've come up before, briefly, and I was actually surprised to find that I've mentioned some concepts in previous podcasts that turned out to be tidal-related as well. We can start close to home, with what's causing the tides in the oceans, and then we can shift to tidal forces in celestial mechanics. Tides can be defined in several ways. According to the bilingual German-English website Beltaforian.de, Quote, a tide is a distortion in the shape of one body induced by the gravitational pull of another nearby object. On Earth, a tide usually refers to the rise and fall of the level of the ocean, though tides are also affected by the shape of the shoreline, ocean currents, and how continents are distributed on the surface of Earth. All of this means that different tidal cycles happen in different regions of the world. I have a tide app on my phone because one of my favorite beaches on the Oregon coast is only accessible at low tide, and you can see how the tide times vary up and down the coast, even though Oregon's looks like it's a fairly straight line on a map. 
The shape of the shore and the currents do have a pretty profound effect on tides coming in and tides going out. There are three types of daily tidal cycles, semi-diurnal, diurnal, and mixed. A semi-diurnal tidal cycle is the most common on Earth and is a cycle with two nearly equal high tides and low tides every lunar day. They have a period of 12 hours and 25 minutes, which means that the time between the lowest tide to the next lowest tide is 12 hours and 25 minutes, or the time between the highest tide and the next highest tide is 12 hours, 25 minutes. The east coast of North America has this kind of semi-diurnal cycle, as do most of the African coasts, New Zealand, Europe, Iceland, and parts of China, India, Australia, and South America. A diurnal tidal cycle has only one high and low tide each lunar day, so it has a period of a little over 24 hours. These types of tides happen in the Gulf of Mexico, most of Alaska, and on the eastern coast of the Kamchatka Peninsula up in Russia. Incidentally, my favorite territory to try and capture in the game Risk, because Kamchatka is super fun to say. <laughs> a mixed tidal cycle has two high and low tides that differ in their peaks. So you'll have a really high, high tide, and then you'll have a less high, high tide. Or you'll have a really low, low tide, and then a less low, low tide. The difference in height between successive high or low tides is called the diurnal inequality. Oregon coasts do have this kind of tide, from what the tide app has shown me, and it also occurs in parts of Southeast Asia and Australia. There's also a kind of tide that's due to weather patterns or atmospheric variations called a meteorological tide. It's when wind or unusually high or low barometric pressure causes variations between the actual sea level and its predicted height. This is a circumstantial kind of tide, though, not really connected with any particular coastline and not connected with any of the astronomical forces that cause the other kinds of daily tides. I'm really feeling the linguistic constraints right now because we call the cycles of the ocean tides, but the forces that cause them are also called tidal forces. And as we move farther from Earth, the effects of gravity and orbit also create tidal forces between celestial objects. Let's stay low for now, though. Let's go to the tidal forces that cause ocean tides, and hopefully I can make the distinction clear enough. Neil deGrasse Tyson defined tidal forces on more cosmological terms. Basic gravitational theory, of the kind Isaac Newton developed in the 1700s, shows that the force of gravity is greatest where an object is closest to another object, and its gravity is least at the point where the object is farthest from the other object. This difference in gravity is what's called a tidal force. The tidal forces acting on the Earth's surface are a combination of the tidal effects of the moon and the tidal effects of the sun. Unexpected, no? That the sun affects the ocean tides? Obviously, the sun has enough gravitational pull to keep Earth and all the other planets and objects in the solar system orbiting, but the sun also has an effect on Earth's ocean tides. Not much of an effect, though. A slight increase in distance between two objects makes a large difference in the strength of the tidal force. Tyson provides an example. Quote, If the moon were just twice its current distance from us, then its tidal force on Earth would decrease by a factor of eight. At its current average distance of 240,000 miles from Earth, the moon manages to create sizable atmospheric, oceanic, and crustal tides by attracting the part of Earth nearest the moon more strongly than the part of Earth that is farthest. The sun is so far away that in spite of its generally strong gravity, its tidal force on Earth amounts to less than half that of the moon. The ocean responds most visibly to being stretched toward the direction of the moon. 
This is called a tidal bulge. The gravitational attraction between the Earth and the Moon is strongest on the side of the Earth that's facing the Moon, because the Moon is closer to that side. This attraction pulls the water toward the Moon on that side of Earth. But on the opposite side of Earth, there's also a tidal bulge, even though the gravitational force of the Moon is lessened because it's farther away. This bulge exists because of inertia. The Earth is being pulled toward the Moon, leaving the tides a bit behind it. So, in terms of how these gravitational forces stack, the Moon is pulling the tides toward itself to make a bulge, then pulling the Earth toward itself and being pulled towards the Earth in return, and finally the tides on the other side of Earth are being pulled, but they have the least amount of gravitational force acting on them, so they're kind of left behind to make a bulge of their own. In this way, the combination of gravity and inertia create two bulges of water, one where the Earth and Moon are closest, and one where they are furthest apart. This also means the Earth isn't just spinning in place, but is pulled by the Moon so that, while it spins on its axis and orbits the Sun, it's also very slightly orbiting a point in space called the barycenter. This is the common center of mass between two objects that allows them to orbit. Because the Earth is larger, the barycenter is closer to the Earth than the Moon. The tidal bulge on Earth is actually always slightly ahead of the Moon's location in its monthly orbit, because the Earth's continental shelves are also acting on the ocean, trying to push the 1.5 quintillion tons of bulging seawater forward. Still, the tidal bulge varies based on both the Moon and the Sun. The gravitational pull of both of these objects can affect the height of the tides to create two kinds of oceanic tides. The most adorable name for a tide I have ever heard is neap tide. These kinds of tides occur when the sun, earth, and the moon make a 90-degree angle. You know a neap tide is going to happen if there's a half moon in the sky. When the sun, earth, and moon are at 90 degrees, the gravitational bulges of the moon and the sun overlap destructively. In other words, the tidal forces of the sun are acting against the tidal forces of the moon, and it cancels these gravitational effects out. At neap tide, I have to say it that way, at neap tide, the difference between high tide and low tide is at its greatest variation. The opposite of neap tides are spring tides, which happen when the sun, earth, and moon all line up. This happens either during a full moon or a new moon phase. During a spring tide, the difference between high and low tide is at its maximum. The Earth is still rotating during all this, too. All these forces acting on it and generating friction from the sloshing oceans and the continental shelves and the seashores are causing Earth to rotate more and more slowly. Days are getting longer at a rate of about one five hundredth of a second per day per century. Since the 1970s, astronomers, and I guess whoever else is in charge of keeping clocks and calendars accurate, have officially adjusted the daily time with leap seconds added every few years at the end of June or December. Earth's rotation will continue to slow down, and the gravitational effect of this slowing will cause the moon to continue to spiral away from the Earth at its current rate of two inches per year until the Earth day exactly equals the lunar month. It'll take over a trillion years for this to happen, but at that point, one Earth rotation will last over a thousand hours, and the moon will appear to be locked in the sky. Can you picture that? In one part of the world, the moon will never set. It'll stay in place all the time. The other side of the world will never get a view of the moon at all. 
This effect, where objects are rotating around each other in such a way that their periods of rotation are in sync, is called tidal locking. Or, well, more accurately, it's a type of double tidal locking, because Earth's tidal force acted upon the moon a long time ago and caused a tidal locking that has resulted in the name of a Pink Floyd album, The Dark Side of the Moon. Earth's tidal forces caused the moon's rotation to slow so that its period of rotation exactly equals its period of revolution around Earth. When this happens, the orbiting object always shows the same face to the body it orbits. It is tidally locked. The moon gets sunlight on all its sides, but because it's tidally locked in its orbit around Earth, there is a part of the moon facing away from Earth that we will never see. And this is what we call its dark side. When Earth's rotation slows until it's matching the moon's orbital period, then Tyson tells us that, quote, Earth will no longer be rotating within its oceanic tidal bulge, and the Earth-Moon system will have achieved a double tidal lock. He notes that that sounds like an undiscovered wrestling hold, but they're actually fairly common because they use up much less energy to maintain those kind of orbits. Pluto and its largest moon, Charon, have already achieved a double tidal lock because they're such similar sizes. There's speculation that it will be common to find these double tidal lock planets out there in the universe, and that the kind that could sustain life will have a narrow band between the blasted, blighted areas of the planet that face the sun and the frozen ice sheets on the area that will never face its sun. These kinds of planets are called eyeball planets by astronomers, because as the ice sheets build up on the backside of the planet, the pressure would melt the lowest layers and allow water to flow closer to the hot side. This water would resemble eye veins before it was evaporated and blown to the far side of the planet to freeze again, but the liquid water trickling to the front of the planet would be the source of life. Some planets will probably never achieve a double tidal lock before the heat death of the universe, though. (laughs) Jupiter, for example... That guy is too dang big. The planet has achieved a tidal lock with almost all of its moons, but it'll never be slowed down by them to the point where they can double tidal lock. The one moon that resists Jupiter's tidal lock is Io. This satellite is the largest satellite that's also closest to Jupiter, and it's the smallest of the four major satellites that orbit Jupiter. Io's orbit is affected by Callisto, Ganymede, and Europa, which means its distance from Jupiter varies depending on how it's pulled by these other moons. This makes it speed up as it gets closer to Jupiter and slow as it gets farther away. It still shows only one face to Jupiter, but the face of Io seems to wiggle a little bit as the tidal bulge facing Jupiter warps Io itself. The moon and Earth are similar enough sizes that the moon can slosh Earth's oceans, but because there's such a large discrepancy between the amount of gravitational force Jupiter exerts on Io compared to what Io exerts on Jupiter, the tidal force Jupiter has over Io creates a massive internal stress within that satellite, and this creates a lot of heat. Before the Voyager 1 space probe even made it to Io, a paper was published in early 1979 by Stanton Peel and his collaborators at the University of California, titled Melting of Io by Tidal Dissipation. When images came back, they proved Io's apocalyptic levels of volcanic activity. There were gargantuan lava flows, lava lakes, huge holes in the surface where superheated material had blasted forth, and towering, collapsing mountains. 
Io is yanked every which way by Jupiter and the other moons of Jupiter to the point where even though Io doesn't have any oceans, it has these huge solid ground tides that rise more than five times as high as the highest ocean tides on Earth. Jupiter's tidal forces have, more recently, obliterated comets that came too close. I somehow remember this, though it started when I was but a wee infant. The comet Shoemaker-Levy 9 was doing its comet job of orbiting the Sun when it came too close to Jupiter. The planet captured it in a long elliptical orbit, and in 1992, a month after I was born, it came so close that it was ripped apart by Jupiter's tidal forces. This is an example of how, in cosmological terms, tidal forces are when gravity affects different parts of an object in unequal ways. Clearly, this can be destructive. During its next close pass to Jupiter in 1994, the two dozen pieces of the now-shattered Shoemaker-Levy comet slammed into Jupiter's atmosphere at nearly 40 miles per second. All those fragments exploded in the dense atmospheric gases with a force equivalent to hundreds of billions of tons of dynamite. Tidal forces are a bit intimidating now, hmm? It's about to get worse. You might recall, I certainly will never forget, that time I talked about spaghettification. This was in episode 13 on lunar and solar orbits. I said some reductionist stuff about tidal forces that I now get to expand upon, but I also went on a little tangent because I ran into the word spaghettification and I got too excited. Can you blame me? It's a real scientific word that NASA has used to describe extreme tidal forces, primarily around black holes, though the destruction of the Shoemaker-Levy comet is an example as well, where an object would be pulled apart as gravity yanked on different parts of the object to different degrees. With Jupiter's gravity pulling on Shoemaker-Levy, it shattered the comet. With black holes, where the laws of physics become almost unrecognizable, the effect of gravity pulling on the closest part of an object to such extreme degrees can cause the body to elongate into, hell yes, spaghetti. It also still shatters. <laughs> Picture this, if you don't mind getting a little bit gruesome. If you're standing on Earth, the force of gravity will be pulling more on your feet than on your head, because your feet are closer to the Earth than your head is. This difference is so slight, you don't notice it. But black holes are basically big gravity sinks. If you stood on a black hole, the difference between the gravitational force on your feet is so much stronger than the gravitational force pulling on your head, it'd stretch you like you were on a torture rack, and it would spaghettify you. All this talk of disintegration at the hands of tidal forces is a little bit grim. You, personally, will never be subjected to spaghettification, and I don't know that we even have visual confirmation of it happening. We do, however, have confirmation of what planets can do when their tidal forces break apart of their objects. There are a couple ways it can go down. Jupiter annihilating Schumacher-Levy and, in turn, getting perforated by the pieces of the comet is one example. The other example of tidal forces is the rings of Saturn. I discussed this in my episode on planets, but Saturn's rings probably formed from pieces of comets and asteroids that shattered under Saturn's gravity before they reached the planet itself, but in a gentler way than Jupiter capturing comets. Still, the pieces crash into each other all the time. 
Currently, we know that the dust and rocks that make up Saturn's rings fall into several divisions, named in the order that they were discovered, rather than alphabetical order. The little moons Pan and Daphnis orbit in gaps in those rings, keeping those gaps open. The ring system extends 175,000 miles from the planet, occupying a space that exists near every planetary body, a region of space in which a celestial body will disintegrate because of Saturn's tidal forces exceeding the first body's gravitational self-attraction, or the force that's holding it together. Basically, the greater gravitational force wins in a tug-of-war over whether an object gets to keep its shape. (laughs) The distance that these tidal forces will tear an object apart is called the Roche Limit, named after French astronomer Edouard Roche. Within the Roche Limit, orbiting material disperses and forms rings. Outside the limit, material tends to coalesce, acting on smaller gravitational pulls. Saturn's rings are within the Roche limit, but it also has captured objects that orbit outside the limit as satellites. I think that's all I can say about tidal forces on a cosmological scale. There have been discoveries in the past few years that single atoms are subjected to tidal forces as well, but that's not really what I talk about. They used interferometry to discover it, though. The real kind, not the radio kind. The kind with lasers. They were dealing with the very small, after all. So... In this episode, we've expanded on tidal forces, moving from the cause of tides to the many horrible ways gravity can kill you in space. (laughs) Tidal forces are, in the most broad terms, the difference in gravitational attraction on different parts of an object in space. They cause tides, tidal locks or double tidal locks, the destruction of objects within the Roche limit and ring systems, and, in extreme cases, spaghettification. (laughs) For the next episode, I'd still like to discuss Stephen Hawking's theories and the man himself. I could also still talk about famous comets. Halley and now Schumacher-Levy have given me some decent examples. You can, of course, suggest some ideas by sending an ask to my Tumblr or tweeting at me on Twitter at HDInTheVoid, all one word. Please subscribe to the podcast on iTunes so you won't miss any new episodes when I'm able to push them out on what now seems to be a monthly basis. It would also be awesome if you could take a couple minutes to rate and review the podcast on iTunes as well. I hope you heard something today that surprised you about astronomy in space. All of it sprinkles cheese on my spaghetti. (laughs) I can pinky promise the next episode will wander ever deeper into the cat's cradle tangle of astronomy and history and society to cheese your spaghetti too. You can find my sources for this episode, music credits, a vocab list, and the episode transcript at all one word, fill the void dash with dash space dot tumblr dot com. Hugs and kisses from the void. HD signing off. <laughs> <laughs>